We have been in a series called Seven Things Christians Believe That the Bible Doesn't Say. And this morning we're going to talk about I'm experiencing divine judgment or I'm experiencing hardship because of my sin, right? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, so I want to ask a quick question before I dive into all this. Can you recount an instance where you felt aware or you were certain you were experiencing divine judgment as a result of disobedience to God? Now, I'm not asking you to share your dirty laundry, you know. I, I don't need you to go into any, you know, sinful events and times in your life where, you know. I'm just asking a general question for your awareness. I think all of us can relate to that question. There are times where we just felt like God's presence had lifted. His blessing had gone because of something going on in our life that wasn't pleasing to God. That's how we used to refer to it. And uh, at its worst, we'd even say things like, well, you know, your sin or your disobedience has actually opened the door, all right? There, there's, a, there's a hole in your hedge now, and you've opened the door through your disobedience to cursing. This is a common religious view. It's been so for millennia. It plays off of the Old Testament legal view of God. Now, all of the people in Jesus' time were very aware of Old Testament scriptures. Let's just call it the law. Now, there was more than that. We had the Psalms and the prophets and historical books and the like. And the law technically is the first five books in the Old Covenant or Old Testament relegated to Moses typically and so when we referred to the law we were referring technically to that but in general sort of all the commands all of the requirements all of the things that they had to obey in order to be pleasing to God and the idea was that if you weren't obedient well then cursing would come if if you were disobedient then God in his anger would take that out on you in some way he'd punish you now let's fast forward because that's the cultural religious understanding of the day throughout the thousands of years of the Old Testament record and then fast forward into the time of Jesus that's absolutely was the dominant religious view of God when Jesus was walking the earth. One day, he was walking around town and ministering and praying for people. And this is recorded in the book of John, chapter 9. Look at this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see the connection? Who sinned? That was the most important thing. It, 
the most important thing on their mind wasn't, well, let's forgive him, let's heal him, let's bring him into the hospital, let's get him well, let's help him. Lord, could you do a miracle on his... Their question was a religious one. And by the way, their relatives are still alive today and attending church. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. See, the direct connection. If he was born blind, it must be because of disobedience or sin against the Lord, and so the Lord's judging him. Now, that's exactly the story that we read in the book of Job. That's what Job's three friends did and said. There must be something, Job, sinful in your life for all this judgment, all this fallout of circumstances to have come and wiped out practically everything you have despite the fact that at the beginning of Job we're told that he was a perfect man here's the mirror translation of John 9 and verse 2 and his followers asked him master whose sin is responsible for this man's condition is he punished for his own sins or perhaps for his parents' sins? Why was he born blind? Now watch this. Here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered emphatically. His condition has absolutely nothing to do with any sins committed, either by himself or his parents. Neither him nor his parents were guilty of sin. This is an opportunity for God's action in Christ to be unveiled I love that is it possible that the circumstances you're experiencing are an opportunity for a fresh activity of God in your life and here you're concerned that God is punishing you this view of God a punishing God a wrathful God an angry God and that bad things in your life are tied to God's punishment of you for your disobedience is so common that you can find it in pulpits today throughout the evangelical world, especially here in the West. I took some time to go to one of the foundational sources of evangelicalism here in America called the Gospel Coalition, and I looked up this view of God, this angry view of God or the wrath of God. And, and actually, what, what I was trying to find was whether or not they believed that judgment... And punishment was tied to sin, this common religious view. Here's what I found written in one of the articles from the Gospel Coalition. Now listen. The law of God is deeply tied to God's character. As far as the Gospel Coalition is concerned, God's really never moved on from the Old Covenant. His whole character is wrapped up in the law. They continued, but where the holy God confronts his creatures in their sin, there must be wrath and the full exercise of his justice and his righteousness. I mean, this sounds like Jesus' disciples. Who sinned that this man was born blind? <laughs> now, 
This one just took my breath away. They continued in this article that I was reading, and I quote, John, for example, does not think of God's love as overlooking our sin. Rather, he views divine love as that which loves the unlovely and undeserving. In fact, the supreme display of God's love is found in the Father giving his own Son as our propitiation that turns back his own holy anger against us and satisfies the demands of justice on his behalf. Oh my goodness, the angry God that we serve, standing ready to punish sin. And if it weren't for Jesus stepping in, and taking that wrath on himself, okay, this whole penal substitution idea and view of God. It's tied to his very character. He's more concerned about this than he is healing the person who is sick. And thus Jesus' disciples ask the question that we all think, if, even if we don't say it, we think it. I bet there's some sin in their life. I wonder what they did to deserve. Come on now, everybody. I wonder what they did to deserve. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating a position, I'd like you to view this video clip. God is about to say, it's enough. You've taken me out of your schools. You've taken my word out of your schools. You've taken me out of your universities. People who believe in me in the universities have been mocked and belittled. God's going to say, you've rejected me, America, and I'll reject you. You've murdered 60 million babies through abortion. Your sins are the equal of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's payday. God could say that to this country. There's one thing that equals the love of God, and you must never forget this. It's the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God. God loved Israel, but when Israel broke the law of God, read the discipline he put them through. It will break your heart. Now, this individual actually believes that the wrath or anger of God, his willingness to punish, his character is bent on punishing, it's equal to his love. Hmm. I don't find that in the ministry of Jesus. I don't find that in the revelation of the New Testament. But let's stay on this legal view of God for just a minute because I I want to help you understand some of the things so that when, when you hear these things, you can spot it, and then you can compare Jesus with this legal view of God, all right? The legal view of God emphasizes legal or judicial aspect of God's relationship with humans. For instance, justice and judgment. It focuses on God's role as a judge. We have to live up to a moral code, and that's paramount. And breaking these codes requires God's judgment. Next, sin and punishment. Sin is seen as a legal offense against God's moral order, and therefore it necessitates a form of punishment or retribution. This view emphasizes the need for atonement to restore a right legal standing before God, and thus atonement is the next principle or word that you will always hear bantered about 
when people have a legal view of God. What are we talking about when we say atonement? It's the consequences of sin are dealt with in a legal manner. Those who preach primarily those, not everybody, but many of those who preach uh, atonement, constant atonement. We have to atone for sin. It involves the concept of substitutionary sacrifice, where someone has to pay the penalty on behalf of the sinner. Next, the word covenants. This is the, the, the legal view, views this as, the interp- they interpret covenants in the Bible as legal agreements between God and humanity. These covenants lay out the terms and conditions of the relationship, including blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. I don't know about you, but this is absolutely the idea of God that I grew up with. I was taught these words and all of these concepts in Bible school. They were connected absolutely with who God was and how he would treat me if I didn't live up to my side of the agreement. Next, the word justification. This is where God declares the guilty sinner as righteous through faith in Christ. Thank you. Amen. This righteousness is often understood as imputed legally credited to the believers allowing them to stand before God so it's 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 really never just forgiveness because God loves you and he's merciful it's always tied to this legal thing it's it's like you got to go into a courtroom and present yourself and qualify all right so some of the metaphors the legal view often uses metaphors from legal proceedings you'll hear it all the time in evangelical teaching such as courtroom imagery to describe the interactions between God and humans. These metaphors help convey the idea of a legal transaction where guilt is addressed and forgiveness is granted. So it's an exchange. Yes, God will forgive, but you've got to come to the table with something called in the transaction that will warrant the forgiveness. Now, that can be a whole litany, litany list of things. Now, it's my purpose this morning to present you with an alternative view to the legal view of God. I call it Jesus, the transformative power of divine love. This view emphasizes the active role of the Holy Spirit in shaping individuals into their true redeemed selves. Now, as I thought about doing a comparison, I gave you a list of denominators for the legal view. I was going to make a list of denominators and attributes for the loving view of the divine. And then I stumbled on this. This is a text message from John Crowder, one of today's foremost voices in uh, certainly the charismatic world, but as well as the prophetic. He's known internationally, well, well respected. And I, I, I read this and I thought, dear Jesus, I'm not even going to attempt to reword this or put this in my own language. I'm just going to read the text to you this morning. Okay? 
well, you don't have it to choice, but I mean, you know, <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I guess you could say, no, I don't want to hear it. Uh, I'm not sure I'd stop, but all right, so here we go. It's rather long. Stay with me. I will have it on the screen. Here we go. Salvation is not a leap. Now, again, I didn't write to him. He didn't text me back. He sent this text this week to all of his followers. Salvation is not a legal transaction to appease a distant deity in some abstract cosmic courtroom. It is not stamping your paperwork as positionally holy by the blood, if you say a prayer, whilst a legalistic God just ignorantly pretends you meet his demanding requirements by mercilessly butchering his own innocent child to pay for the mercy you receive. Now, underscore in bold type, forgiveness bought is not forgiveness. Love purchased is not love. Holiness pretended is unholy. He continues. Salvation is the embodiment of the eternal Son, of the Father, into the heart of our darkness, vicariously curbing our broken humanity back from the verge of non-being. Hospital. Through his own life of holiness, he reverses the self-destructing disease of our sin by absorbing our own inhuman wrath on the tree, defeating death by death. See, it wasn't God's wrath. It was our wrath that Jesus was absorbing. He did it. He did not acquire the Father's love for us. Watch this. Jesus did not acquire the Father's love for us. Jesus demonstrates and enacts the Father's unconditional love toward us by meeting and becoming us in the depth of our fallen condition, then recreating us according to his benevolent design. He continues, The Holy Spirit is the fire of that love, salting every one of us, burning away the delusional false self by illuminating Christ as perfect revelation of our true selves. And likewise, the perfect image of his forever gracious Father. Finally, bowing to a false god of legal fiction only replicates within us the same powerless, pretentious veneer of pseudo-holiness. I grew up with that. I lived that for decades. A veneer of holiness through my own attempts to be holy through my own power, my own repentance and prayers and going to church and all of that, and it was pseudo-holiness. But the spirit of truth actuates real-life virtue within us, making us truly human by revealing the authentic heart of the Father displayed in Jesus Christ. I want to pause. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> What a comparison. I don't see an angry God in that. I don't see a punishing God waiting for you to fail. I don't see God causing one of your children to be blind or lame because you sinned in your life earlier. This 
This is my comment as we close this segment. Moreover, it's worth noting that the illustration of Jesus' mission, and in fact the storyline of Scripture, presents sin as a malady. This ailment is approached with empathy, and those afflicted by it are nurtured back to health through love. This approach is a hospital rather than a courtroom. Now you remember our title, I'm experiencing divine judgment, or I'm experiencing hardship because of my sin. No, you are not. No, you are not. We need to change our view of God because the view Jesus presented was one of love and healing. And oh, by the way, they're not separate entities. What did Jesus say? Help me finish this scripture. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. <laughs> He's the only one who could ever claim. Paul wrote in the book of Colossians, he is the exact image, the replication of God. And you look at the ministry of Jesus, and let's just take the woman caught in adultery that they brought and they threw down before Jesus. Remember? And Jesus wrote in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. We conjecture in sermons. <laughs> I think he was writing the names of all the men that were standing there who had committed adultery with prostitutes. <laughs> but anyway, so he stands up and he says, so let he who is among you cast the first stone. Who, he who is without sin among you, pardon me, that's important, you could hear the rocks dropping. Oh, stones. And they turned around, they were walking away. Right, remember that. And he reached out and he took the woman by her hand and he said, Woman, who has condemned you? She looked around. No one, Lord, they've all left. He said, Neither do I condemn you. That's God talking to anyone caught in the trap of prostitution or unholy living in any way. It's not one of punishment and judgment. It's one of forgiveness. It's one of healing. It's one of love. All right, watch this now. Romans chapter 8. You know Paul wrote the book of Romans. So this is on pretty good authority. I'm going to read it first from the King James Version because there's something I want to show you about that translation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 goes like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Hold it. Do you see the asterisks there? <laughs> Problem. That's in parenthetical. And you can read this from practically any other translation of the Bible. English or otherwise. And almost only the King James, which evangelical America holds to, preaches, says this was the Bible Jesus used and this was the translation Paul preached with. Oh, what ignorance. 
But they do, they believe that. There's people that believe that about the King James translation. Now, get this. The reason that's in italics in your Bible and the reason almost every other English translation excludes it is because it isn't there. I'll read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, period. The verse stops. Somebody, a translator, added who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. I think this translator just couldn't deal with the love and forgiveness of God. He had to tie it back to some sort of control I continue to have or need I continue to have to negotiate in court my forgiveness. Oh, I don't know. I know. Jeff, you're taking liberties. Well, so do all the preachers who say they know what Jesus was writing in the sand, and we don't. But I do like my supposition. Here's the Passion Translation, okay? So now the case is closed. This is the Passion Translation. So now, Romans 8.1, the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One. Or, in the footnotes of the translation, it says, those who are in Christ Jesus cannot be condemned. The issue is divine character. Jesus addresses that divine character in his own preaching ministry. When one day he walked into the temple, they were having worship service, they were watching Israel Houghton, in one of their videos, right? And they were all clapping and praising God with Israel Houghton, the worship leader. And, and, and then they stopped the service, and it was time to read. And they took the scrolls, and they handed it to Jesus. And Jesus read from this text from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim or bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness to the uh, prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, that's the way it reads in Isaiah. When you read Luke's account, of Jesus taking the scroll, unrolling it, and reading. Here's what Luke says Jesus read. Here's how Jesus read it in the temple that day. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. He closes the book, rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. Notice anything? Notice anything missing? Notice any divine edit that Jesus just takes the liberty to exercise? (laughs) Let me review with you. Here's how it reads In Isaiah, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Here's how Jesus reads it 
and then rolls the scroll up and sits down. He edits it. To proclaim liberty, to set it oppress the free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. There is no more vengeance, dear ones. There is no more punishment. You cannot be accused. I don't care what you've done or what's happening in your life right now. You stand forgiven and can never be accused. You are free. Somebody said it this way. We are not on trial. Oh, how many of us have walked through our Christian walk thinking we are in trial. You can't be condemned, and nothing can change that that you will ever do. I love this quote. I'll tell you who it is in just a moment. Then we're going to have some Q&A. Ready? Confession has nothing. I want you to read this aloud with me. Everybody, and there at home, come on, read it with me. Ready? Read. Confession has nothing to do with getting ourselves forgiven. Confession is not a transaction, not a negotiation in order to secure forgiveness. It is the after the last grasp of a corpse that finally can afford to admit it's dead and accept resurrection. Forgiveness surrounds us beats upon us all our lives. We confess only to wake ourselves up to what we already have. We are not forgiven, therefore, because we made ourselves forgivable or even because we had faith. We are forgiven solely because there is a forgiver. That is profound. Father Robert Capone, American Episcopal priest, author, and theologian. I rest my case this morning. <laughs> I want to open it up for conversation. We have a